John has already told you a number of things as his mind and heart have been guided and directed by God the Holy Spirit through the wonderful and reliable work of inspiration. How blessed we are, beloved, to have before us today the word of God preserved to us from the pen of the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's so easy to take that for granted. And yet it's something that we should never allow to be taken for granted. You have before you the word of God, the inspired word of God from the pen of that disciple whom Jesus loved. If you're a disciple of Christ Jesus, then you know and you understand that these words were written by a holy man of God named John, who spoke as he was moved by the Holy Spirit, and that these words that are given by the inspiration of God are profitable for doctrine and reproof, correction and instruction in righteousness, in order that you might be complete and thoroughly equipped to every good word, work. Excuse me. You know that. You understand that. You believe that. Now, let me just ask you, um, do you ever get any junk mail? That's practically all we get in our mailbox anymore is junk mail. And that's the majority of what appears there. Do you ever get a lot of spam or phishing in your email? I think everybody does. We all, we all do. They're relentless, aren't they, <laughs> those things? These are all messages, I think as you well know, that are sent out with what the sender hopes is enticing information at best, and sadly, a large portion of it goes out with nefarious and damaging aims at worst. These communications aren't usually specifically targeted. Your name might be on them, but there's really nothing personal in it. I laugh because I get all kinds of very personal messages from all sorts of companies that begin, Dear G. And then throughout the letter, they say things like, G, do you know? And then they go on from there. They're not there to serve you and me. Those letters, those communications are sent out to, to serve the sender in some way, whether that way is legitimate or not. And I'm afraid that sometimes people view the word of God in that same light. They imagine that it's a form of what we might call holy spam, you know, that uh, it's sent out helter-skelter with the hopes that there'll be somebody sometime who will see it and it will catch their eye and they'll pay attention to it. But that, beloved, is not the character of God's word. The Lord says that his word, and I know many of you know this, that his word, like the rain that comes down 
and the snow from heaven it and doesn't return but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater his word shall be just like that it will go forth from his mouth it will won't return to him void it will prosper in the thing for which he sends it and it'll accomplish what he pleases and that's what Isaiah 55 says and so you see here in 1 John that this is a specific letter sent to specific people with a specific purpose it's not a general appeal it's focused instruction and what is John writing to us about in this focused instruction well he tells you back in chapter 1 of 1 John and verse 1 what he's writing about that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life that's what we're writing to you about we're writing to you about the Lord Jesus Christ we're writing to you about the gospel we're writing to you about the message of who he is and what he's done, and what we know of him, and what we found in him. Why was John writing, is, why is John writing to you about those things? Well, he answers that question too. Again, in chapter 1, this time beginning in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So there he explains it, so that you will have fellowship with him, fellowship with the Lord, and that your joy might be full. So he tells us what he's writing about, and then he tells us what his aim is in writing it. Now, beloved, the same Holy Spirit, who moved and inspired John to write these words, is at work here today. At least we pray that he is. We pray that it's so. We pray that he's at work here right now. This is his word. He's worked in the hearts of Tyler and myself to take up this portion of his word. And though we're not divinely inspired and don't claim to be in any way like John was, he does speak to us through his word as we prayerfully prepare these messages, prepare them for you. And he does work in us as you pray for us. And now, as you've prayed for God's blessing on you, under the preaching of the word, you should be expecting and looking for him to do just that, to speak to you through his word. He's the one who's involved in it all. He's the one who inspired it from the beginning. He's the one who works in those who take it up to read it or to study it or to preach it. And for those who hear that preaching or that teaching. This hasn't all come together by happenstance, beloved. It's come together by providence. 
not with a generic and unspecified purpose, but with a divine design. So as your response to an email from some law firm offering to represent you in the Camp Lejeune water case, I hear people laughing, so I know you've gotten that opportunity, just as your response to that email would be different than the one you would get from the dearest friend who might be writing you. If you're like me, you see Camp Lejeune, you go, trash. But if you see one from your dearest friend, you open it up, you want to know what it says, you want to know what's there. Well, this is from your dearest friend. And it's his word to you. This is a letter from the one who loves you the most. And it has a purpose, and it has a design, and there's a reason why you're here this morning, and we have been brought by the Spirit to the consideration of this portion of his word. Now, seminarian Brillhart brought us through the first two sections of chapter 2 last week, and this morning we come to the portion that begins this way, and this is 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. Where John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, John begins this portion by invoking one of his favorite descriptions of the disciples of Jesus Christ little children. He used the term in the very first verse as well. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 1, he says there, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And here again, he gives us another purpose for his writing. That you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a dear disciple of Jesus Christ, might not sin, and to remind you that if you do, you have an advocate, and that advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, why does John use this term, little children? It almost sounds demeaning, doesn't it? If I came to you and I said, I think you're acting childish, unless you're a child, you would be offended, and even children are sometimes offended when you say that to them. He's really calling you here, dear little infants. Dear little infants. And as soon as we see that Jesus used that term for his apostles, any insult, I think, kind of melts away, doesn't it? In John chapter 13 and verse 33, and again, this is John's gospel, he quotes Jesus as saying this in John chapter 13, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
dear little infants, he says to Peter and John and James, dear little infants, I'm going and you can't go with me. And maybe you'll remember also that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18 and verses 3 through 4, he said there, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what you are hearing here is John addressing his disciples in such terms, terms of endearment, knowing that he is speaking to us by the Spirit. And beloved, it shouldn't offend us in any way. It should warm our hearts. It's a term that he will continue to use throughout this epistle, all the way to the final verse. And it's interesting, in every instance where he uses this term, you are given some specific instruction. Your little infants of the Lord are given instruction. Verse 28 of this chapter, 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So little ones, little children, abide in him, that you might not be ashamed. Then we move to chapter 3 and verse 7. And there John writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. So the first instruction is, abide in me. Second instruction, don't let anyone deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Then down to verse 18 in chapter 3. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then in chapter 4, and he does this, I'm going to quote verse 1 where he doesn't use that term, but that's where he gives the instruction, and then I'll come down to verse 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So little children, don't trust or don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And then lastly, in the final verse of his epistle here, of this first epistle, chapter 5, verse 21, he says, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. So you see, every time he uses that term, dear little ones, he follows it with instruction of some kind. Something that you are supposed to do with his strength, by his grace. And I hope you'll notice that while he is going to break this down somewhat, um, he is here using this endearing term that puts all his readers on the same plane. He writes to all who share the same hopes in Christ as little children. There's no hierarchy of faith, no, no order here. 
every one of us who is a disciple of Jesus Christ falls under this category of dear little ones, loved little ones. And the picture is such a precious one. You, know, you, you see that little baby and you look at that baby and your heart just goes out to it, doesn't it? And, and you, just, you just look at that little one, you look at the little hands, you look at that face, you look at the smile or the frown or the cry, and your heart's drawn into the life of that little child. And that's the, the term that's being here to describe us in all, all this context, that you are the Lord's dear little ones. And he looks at you that way with that, that love, that care, that concern. Now, under this general heading of dear little ones, he acknowledges, and we'll see that as we proceed through this next week, that there are some mature and experienced persons that he calls generically fathers. And this is the formal use of the term father, and it's not just fathers, but mothers could, could be considered there too. It's maturity that's being referred to. And there are some newer and energetic ones that he calls young ones, or young men, but again, it's a generic term, and it's the ones in whom there's energy and strength and so on. They're new and experienced ones also that are called half-grown ones, so to speak. And he also calls them children. But he uses a different word than he does here when he introduces this subject in general. In other words, when he calls you little ones, it's a different word than when he talks about little children in another, in another way, when he's dividing up the groups under that idea of little children. I hope that makes sense to you. The general thing is you're all his delightful little ones. And then under that, there are mature, experienced believers. There are those who are in the vigor and strength of their faith. And there are those who are just new believers and are fragile and need care and attention and feeding. But the point is that all, no matter who they are, fall under, first of all, this general title of endeared infants. Candlish describes the two groups in this way. He just divides them into two groups. He says, old and spiritually exercised Christians. You know who you are, right? You old and experienced, exercised Christians on the one hand. And on the other hand, those who are in the fresh and vigorous prime of recent yet nevertheless manly Christian experience. He gives yet another reason why he's writing. He says that he's writing here because you have been forgiven your sins for his name's sake, for Christ's name's sake. For his name's sake, the name of Jesus, you have the total remission of your sins and have been excluded from any prospect of punishment. That's the force of what he says here. When he says your sins are forgiven, you have been had the complete and total remission of your sins and you are excluded from the prospect of all punishment. Now, don't misunderstand. There are consequences to sin. 
And people often interpret those consequences as some form of punishment. It's not punishment. It's the result of your behavior. It's the result of your actions. If you lie, people are not going to trust you. That's not a punishment. It's a result of your lying. You can be forgiven for the, for the sin of lying, and you are forgiven for it, and there'll be no punishment for that in Christ, but there will be, there may be consequences because of it. And so you can apply that to all sin. Now, as you reflect on these words this morning, just that Jesus here says through John that he is writing to you as his dear little ones because your sins have been forgiven. You can understand, I think, first of all, why the profane use of the Savior's name grates so much against your soul. And hopefully it does. There's the danger that hearing people use the name of Christ profanely so much in our society today will somehow steal us towards it. And we don't want that to happen. This should be something that always grates against our soul. We as dear little children of Christ, we have been forgiven our sins for his name's sake. And to hear that name used as a curse and profanely should always trouble us. John Newton in his great hymn says, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna in the hungry soul and to the weary rest. And to hear that name then used in some profane, bitter way just grates against all that it means to us and all that is provided for us through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. More so than in any other context. This happened to me when I was a chaplain. That the police officer I was riding with, or the police officer that I was made be with in some context, would use the name of God in vain. And use the name of Christ in vain. And... Many of them, not all, but many of them would immediately go, oh, I'm I'm sorry, chaplain, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to offend you. And it took courage, but my constant response to that reaction was, I appreciate that, but you don't owe me an apology. You owe an apology to the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name you've used in vain. To help them to see that they aren't offending me as much as they're offending Christ. And that Christ is a living judge who will hold them accountable for using his name in vain. Now, why is this such an offense to us? Well, it's because it's not just a name. That is a designation of Jesus, say, from Peter. The name, in this case, embodies all that Christ is in his person and work. You think back to that eventful night when the angel appeared to Joseph as he was contemplating privately divorcing Mary. 
And the angel came to Joseph, and in Matthew chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21, we read him saying this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and hopefully you either have it in front of you or you can see it behind me. Why is his name Jesus? I hear it whispered. Why don't we all say it together? And you shall call... Well, it was pretty good. Let's try it again. For he will save his people from their sins. So you see why he's going to be called Jesus? Just so you won't confuse him with Peter? Or with John? Or with Bartholomew? No, he's going to be called Jesus, the saving one, because he will save his people from their sins. His name was based on who he was and what he was coming to do. And Joseph is to give him this name in faith. That is not just as an identifier, but as a confession of faith, avowing him to be the savior of men from their sins. To hear his dear name turned into a term of derision and profane cursing is grieving to those hearts who know it's sweet healing sound. And to the profane, we would say this. Pick another name. There are plenty of names that are associated with the vilest human behavior. If you want a name to use as a curse, pick another one. How about your own? Why don't you use that name? When you're frustrated and when you want to express some kind of hatred or or meanness or some sort of surprise or frustration, use your own name. Don't use the name of Christ. And do it for your own sake. Because the one you mock will not hold the one guiltless who uses his name in vain. And there's coming a day when every knee in heaven and earth will bow at that name. If you've got to use a name, use another one. There are plenty of them. And beloved, it's part of your duty as little children in this time not to allow the name of Jesus Christ to be relegated to the junkyard of gods and demigods conjured up by the fanciful imaginations of men and women. Now, how do you do that? Well, first of all, by bearing his name to the world. By bearing it to the world. That name which is a curse to you, that name is sweet to me. That name which you throw out of your mouth without thinking about it or, or because you're frustrated or because you're angry, that's a name I speak in prayerful reverence. That's a name I adore. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter writes, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our job, to proclaim his name, 
when we hear it profanely used, to encourage its proper use. The second way we do this is by obeying him as our living king. You know, the idea of apologizing to Jesus for using his name in vain, you would think I was you know, speaking in some foreign language to the officer who I would say that to. You know, well, Jesus, I, what is he? Who is he? Don't even acknowledge or think about the fact that he's alive. We're the ones to communicate to this dying and dark world that Christ is alive and that he is the redeemer of men. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 9, Paul says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And we want that to be communicated, that he is Lord over us. In John chapter 14, just before where we read this earlier this morning, in verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will come and live with that one. That's what we're communicating, that Christ is in us. And then here in 1 John, in chapter 3, in verse 23, John writes, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as He has commanded us. And by doing that, by living as though He were our King, we keep His name in His proper perspective. And thirdly, by looking for His blessed return in power and great glory. Peter, again, writing in chapter 3, verse 11, says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, (coughs) because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth, in in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, at peace in him. We're living in a world full of turmoil. But here here is this island of believers, little children of Christ who are at peace. How can you be at peace in the midst of all this turmoil? Because of Christ and because we know he's coming again. His name is precious, and it is a blessing to be identified with it. You can see how precious and valuable this name is. It is the name for the sake of which you have been forgiven all your sins. Here's the name that is above every name, the name of the Savior. Again, but this time in the hymn of Bethune, we sing, There is no name so sweet on earth, no name so sweet in heaven, the name before his wondrous birth to Christ the Savior given. To Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess him, and we unite with saints in light our only Lord to bless him. O Jesus, by that matchless name, 
Your grace shall fail us never. Today as yesterday the same. You are the same forever. To be identified with this name is to be associated with the greatest of names. And John Calvin says this about that. God is propitious to us or kind and gracious to us from a regard to Christ in order that he might exclude all other reasons. We also, that we may enjoy this blessing, must pass by and forget all other names and rely only on the name of Christ. So I go back to what we said earlier, that affectionate view of you dear little infants, it's yours because the name of Christ is written over you. That's why. Take that name away and you are no longer his dear little ones. God is propitious to you and me, gracious and loving towards you and me for Christ's sake alone. It's worth noting that when the churches in Revelation are commended, it's for their defense and identification with the name of Jesus Christ. To the church at Ephesus, Jesus writes this. This is Revelation 2.3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The Lord says, I know what you have done for my name's sake. And it's acknowledged by Christ himself. To Pergamum, he says this, and this is verse 13 of chapter 2. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You're in the pit of earthly hell. But you have held fast to my name, Christ says. And he knows it. And to Philadelphia, he declares this in Revelation 3.8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And you notice the three things here associated with the name of Christ that these churches did because they served really to flesh out the things that we had earlier. The first three were more or less the what of the matter. Here we have the how of it. They honored his name because they endured for his namesake. They upheld his name despite satanic opposition and persecution. And they kept and did not deny his name. In Ephesus, they endured patiently, that is hopefully and cheerfully, working for Christ's name's sake and not growing exasperated. In Pergamum, they laid hold on his name with strength and would not let it go despite all the pressure that was being applied to them to let go. Now, if you, someone's coming at you and maybe they have a knife, you're going to try to hit their hand in some way to make them let go of the knife. 
And that's the picture here. These people are pounding on you, pounding on your hand to get you to let go of that name of Christ. But you're not doing it. You're holding on, he says, in Pergamum. In Philadelphia, they didn't deny his name, which means, as John Gill says, they did not deny his doctrine respecting his person, office, and grace, neither in words nor in works, but both ways confessed and owned it. They said, yes, this is Jesus. Yes, this is the Redeemer. Yes, this is the Savior of men. They wouldn't be moved away from that doctrine of truth. And brethren, are we in any different situation than those right now? Isn't there a relentless hammering away to get you to let go of your affection, your allegiance, your love to the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't there a call for you just to step back a bit from that and to deny all the things? Are you trying to say that Jesus is the only Savior of men? Your religion is the only right religion? We're going to have to do something about that. We're going to have to re-educate you because that's bigoted and it's biased and we need to train you to see that there are other ways. That's the message that's being sent to us constantly, beloved. And we are tasked with holding fast to that name and that doctrine and that truth and letting no one drive us from it and we must do it because our sins are forgiven for that name's sake if we forsake that name we forsake that forgiveness and that brings us to the end here what benefits are ours because of that name the total remission of all sin and the exclusion from all punishment. Oh, what a blessing to know that our sins are all paid for, all remitted by his blood atonement. From the deepest and ugliest and and most insidious of them to the most thoughtless and cavalier of them when we aren't even realizing that we're sinning and offending him. They're all covered, and as one puts it, once and for all, forever. And how sad it is, beloved, that there's a whole system of religion that claims to operate in Jesus' name, but denies the power and grace of that name, and doles out punishments and preaches of a purgatory where punishment is wrung out of agonizing souls even after they come to Christ. What a tragedy that is. It's a denial of the word of God. John, who walked with Jesus, whose purpose in writing is to give you joy, who is inspired by the spirit of God, says, you little children, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Forgiven, remitted. Salvation is laid up for us in Christ alone, says Calvin. Now, this whole epistle deals with the other side of that coin. It dashes to pieces any idea that the truth is, that this truth is meant to imply that believers can now sin with impunity. (laughs) 
You know, we can, oh, we don't have to worry about it because all our sins are remitted. So it doesn't matter what we say, what we do, or what we think. Now, the whole epistle runs contrary to that. Why is he writing that you don't sin? That's why. So you won't sin. So that's dashed here. John, throughout this letter, calls on a life of holiness for Christ's sake. Now, we have to stop here today. But next week, Lord willing, we'll be able to begin looking at the breakdown between the mature and the young and the active Christians that John addresses and how that applies. But for today, let me just close with these thoughts and applications. The first one is this, beloved. This scripture is for you. It was written, it was preserved, and it is preached with that purpose. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is for you. Secondly, our best approach to the word of God is as little children. As little children. God loves me. What does God have to say to me? What does he want me to know? What does he want me to believe? What does he want me to do? Psalm 34:11 says, "Come, O children," says the Lord, "listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord." Thirdly, you're tasked with honoring the name of Christ, beloved. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul writes, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, beloved, you are the ones whose sins are fully forgiven and you are in no danger of punishment because Christ bore it all on your behalf. Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 15 says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as people who are free. Think about that. Live as people who are free. As people whose sins are remitted and who have no fear of punishment. Live like that. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live like free men and women. Live like free little ones. And Christ's name will be glorified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together in your word this morning. Lord, as we bow before you, each heart here has to assess its place before you. And Lord, I pray that this room filled with little ones, that we're rejoicing this morning in the love and the care that you have for us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to honor and to respect the name of our Savior. 
We know that it's for the sake of his name that we have been saved. And Lord, our sins have been carried away. And we have no fear of punishment at your hands for any sin. And Lord, we seek to adore you. We seek to praise you. We seek to thank you for that. And Lord, you tell us that we do that by obeying you. And Lord, by bearing your gospel to the world. So Lord, give us the grace to do that. If there's anyone here this morning who looks upon him or herself and says, I don't see myself as the dear little one of God in Christ. Lord, may they see that that's the whole message of the gospel. Come to Christ. Humble yourself is the call. And come in the name of Jesus. Come as a little child and receive that redemption which is promised. That's your call to them today, Lord. And we pray that you would give them ears to hear and hearts to believe. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us as your people as we go out. May we go out determined to honor the name of our Savior as your dear little ones. For we ask it all in that name which is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. Amen.